following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good to see you guys. It's good to see you guys today. Um, yeah, so if you're visiting today, I'm sorry. Okay, super sorry. Uh, come back next week and hear Vince. I think it'd be helpful. We do something similar at our church. Uh, we do Summer in the Psalms. And I think of like 13 weeks, I preach six of them. And, and the rest of them are covered by other, other men uh, in our church. Vince has actually preached several of those the last couple summers. Uh, today at our church, we're like a mile away. Uh, one of our men's preaching for the very first time. At our church. Yeah, he's been with us for three years. And so anyways, love that we can do this. I'll do my best. I, I called Vince earlier this week. And I said, brother, there's some theology attached to this parable. Like, I want to make sure that we're cool with this and that um, I know it as well as you do. And uh, he said, yeah, let's, let's do it. So uh, we're in Luke 11 today. If you have a Bible, Luke 11, the parables um, that Jesus taught, I think is a beautiful concept. I, parables are challenging at times. Uh, I guess I've heard it said that they're earthly stories with heavenly meanings, right? And so there's like an interpretation needed for the parables. The really cool thing about most of our parables, though, is that Jesus actually follows up the parabolic piece with promises or the actual translation of what that parable means, okay? And what's really cool, too, is if you read parables and we try to preach parables, and if it seems super confusing and sort of overwhelming, that's cool because to the disciples, they were all overwhelming as well. And Jesus had to like, like I don't know, uh, respectfully dumb it down for them, okay? And so, uh, and so I've had a lot of like, Jesus, please dumb this down for me, okay? Because it's, it's a bit of a challenging parable, but man, it's so good. It's so good. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 11. I'll get there in just a couple of minutes. Um, going to take a couple of minutes to sort of take off, but once we're in the air, it'll be a short flight. Can I put it that way? All right. There's a lot of sort of foundational theological uh, pieces that I want to lay before you so that we can best understand what this parable is trying to do for us. Now, if you know anything about Luke chapter 11, the first four verses of Luke chapter 11 is one of the most well-known pieces of the New Testament. It's the Lord's Prayer. Okay, so Jesus actually teaches how to pray. We then enter into Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13, the very follow-up portion right behind where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And we, we enter into this parabolic piece followed by a promise, which is actually sort of a conclusion bookend to this whole um, section of Scripture that's focused on prayer. All right, and so, so essentially, all that to say this morning is meant to strengthen your prayer life. It's meant to encourage you in your prayer life with Jesus. Um, but once again, there's, I think, some deeper understandings that would be helpful for us before we get into it. Uh, a couple of months ago, my wife and I, we lead a small group at our house on Tuesday nights. A couple of months ago, we had a young lady ask us, I think it was a clever question um, and probably one that we've all wondered at some point in our walk before. Um, but, but essentially what, what she asked was, why is it that we should pray? Like, if God has a will, which we know that he does, and if God is unchangeable, which we know that he is, and if Isaiah teaches, which we'll get to in a moment, that he's preordained the ends from the beginning, and so, so if it's already figured out, then what's the point of us praying to God for things? 
right? Like, why am I going to pray for healing if he already has it figured out whether or not I'm going to be healed on this side of eternity or not? If I'm, if I'm praying for blessings, what's the point if he's already got it all figured out, preordained, figured out from the beginning, all the, we literally just saying that we're fighting a battle that he's already won, right? You just saying it. We're right now fighting a battle that the future version of existence has already been declared victory over. So if that's the case, if he's, am I, you can turn me down if you need to, bro. I, whatever. I don't know what it sounds like to you guys, but I get a little excited sometimes up here. Um, but if that's the case, what's the point? If it's already figured out. And, and so, so that's sort of the lens in which I want you to ponder our parable today. Because Jesus answers those questions. Let me read the text to you. Luke 11, verses 5 through 13. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves because a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to serve him. And from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even if he will not get, get up and give him anything just because he is a friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, which of you fathers will uh, his son ask for a fish, and instead of a fish you give him a snake? Or he will even ask for an egg, and his father will give him a scorpion. So if you, despite being evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's my challenge today. Let's pray over this, and, and we'll, we'll do, do our best. Jesus, you're good to us. Oh, you're so good to us. Lord, we're grateful for the gathering of your saints. We're grateful for the worship that we corporately get to offer up to a Father who is deserving of all of it. Jesus, I'm grateful for the fellowship of the saints, Lord, as we get to encourage each other, love each other, Lord, as we are edified, Lord, in your presence, Lord, I pray that your spirit, in a way that only your spirit can, will illumine the truth of your word in the hearts and the minds of your people. And I pray that we leave here change, God, because there's power in your word and there's power in your spirit. Be blessed today, Lord. We ask it in your name. Amen. All right, I love what A.W. Tozer says. I got a bit of a lengthy quote from him, but in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, here's what Tozer says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing to us. The, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. He continues, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. Were we able to extract, as he continues, from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. 
A right conception of God, let me wrap this up, is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe, he says, there is scarcely an error of, in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. What's the point of that? Is that I believe there is no more definitive benchmark of a person's spiritual maturity than his or her view of God. And so in John, 1 John chapter 2, John says it this way. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Paul writes in Philippians 3.10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings because like him, uh, becoming like him in his death. Sort of the point is this, that the very first foundational truth I want to lay before you this morning is as we grow in our understanding and our knowledge of God, we begin to understand a lot of things about him. We begin to understand that he's eternal. We begin to understand that he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. We begin to understand that he's holy, that he's unchangeable, that he's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. He's omnipresent, which means he exists everywhere at all times. Y'all, He's majestic. The characteristics of God continue to go on and on and on. We know that he's sovereign. We know that he brings to pass, listen to me, this is where it's important because of the providential work of God. He brings to pass the perfect plan that he's ordained from the beginning. That's just a sovereign, powerful, majestic father. Job says it this way in Job 42. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The psalmist says it in Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Solomon even says in, in Proverbs, why Solomon says in Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of man. Y'all ever had plans before that were broken? Anybody? Man, it just didn't go the way I planned, right? Okay, listen to me. That's not the case with God. Can I just lay that theological, deep thinking reality to you? It's, that's not the case. In fact, Solomon continues, many of the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah, probably the most well-known uh, piece of scripture concerning this particular topic, Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And just in case you need a little New Testament to help you understand the theological a little bit more, Acts 1-7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Here's the point. God has complete control. He's got complete authority. He's a sovereign God, completely in charge of all things and all the events of history. Listen, he's in control of the wicked stuff. Uh, remember Acts chapter 4, Peter and, and John were before the council, and then the church, they were gathered, and they were praying. And, and here's, 
Here's, here's their prayer in, in Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, they're praying to God, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, so the point of that is like the most heinous act in all of history, God had control over that as well, the death of Jesus. In fact, it's, it's declared by Paul in Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I'm not getting like into soteriology today, all right? That's for your pastor and for you to work out. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting into like salvific theology specifically. I'm looking at broader picture, but maybe that's for another day. But here's the point that I'm trying to lay before you as safely as I can and, and as accurately as I can. God has preordained and figured out everything. There's got to be some rest in that, right? Knowing that we're still going to mess it up. Like we're, like, like, we're not the one in control of all. Could you imagine if you were God in control of all things? Like, like I'm a dad. And like, like come on, man. I, I, I have a hard time trying to figure out how to like keep my family together sometimes. You know what I'm saying? I got three boys growing up, man. Those guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. And so like, I, I could imagine being your God, man. Praise God I'm not. Like, you should be very joyful that I'm not. But God's got to figure it out, man. He's preordained everything. It's all under his control. He doesn't freak out about anything. <laughs> he already knows the next steps. Listen, he knows all the steps for all of eternity, which makes us ask this question. If all that's true, and it's all been preordained, it's all been figured out, he's already got it locked down, all of it, man, then what's the point in prayer? Like, why am I asking him for anything? Hasn't it already been figured out? I can't change his mind. Listen to me. Did you know? Did you know that your prayers do not give God new information? Can you believe that? Lord, I don't know if you know this about me right now, man, but like I need you to. How about this? Like your circumstances don't surprise him. You know, when you screwed up this week, he knew that was going to happen. Like, right? Like he's not looking at me saying, Chuck, man, you just totally, totally wrecked all of redemptive history because I didn't expect that from you literally never thing he's ever thought, right? So doesn't it seem a bit unnecessary then to go to him in prayer, to ask for anything? That's a question maybe you've wondered. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe you're far more spiritually developed than I am. But um, here's what I find interesting as we get into the parable. Jesus prayed. Remember Gethsemane? Jesus prayed, hey, Lord, Father, could, could, could your plan change, perhaps? Remember that, that whole flesh versus deity battle that was happening in the life of Jesus in that moment? Not only did Jesus pray, Jesus gave models of how we should pray. Literally the section that I've referenced right before this. Jesus commands his followers to pray. And, and you know that scripture in Jeremiah that you've got on a coffee mug that is taken out of context every time you declare it to be true? Jeremiah 29 all right, let me, can I, sorry, dude. Um, can, can I just remind you, if you've got that coffee mug, this is actually a, declara- a prophetic declaration over Israel, okay? Like, not all of you, okay? But like, do you, boo? All right, it's cool. He says, for I know the plans I have. By the way, don't we give these out on plaques during graduation season? Okay, like all you little Israelites, this must be for you. For I know the plans I have for you, that declares the Lord. I'm sorry if y'all did that. I don't mean to be offensive. Um, I think we have two in the past. Um, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know that text, don't you? This, this prophetic declaration of Israel, 
where God says, I know the plans I've got for you, and this is what it is, okay? We don't ever actually get into the next part of the text, though. The very next verse. Okay, so he, he lays out before Israel, I know the plans I've got for you, and here's what those plans are. You will have, you will have hope and a future. He says, I'm, I'm going to get you through this, okay? He, he's laying before them, I know what's going on, man. I got it figured out. And then there's another verse right behind it that says it this way. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You got that? Okay, I got it figured out, but I still want you to come to me in prayer. I got it all figured out and I got all of your prayers answered actually. They've been answered a long time ago. But I still want you spending time with me, bringing requests to me. Man, I got the future of everything and yet I still want you to pray to me. The Psalms are even loaded with commands to pray. Psalm 17:1. Here it just calls, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer for, uh, from lips free of deceits. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. There's so many more, but, but church, if prayer does not change God's mind or his plans, then what's the point? We see it all over scripture, telling us we should do it, showing us how we should do it, but what's the point? Here's what I'm going to lay before you, okay? And it's what the parable is going to lay before you, and it's what Jesus is going to lay before us in our text, is, is that is that God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means to the ends. That's why it matters. Let me give you two quick examples that you're familiar with. Remember Micah 5.2, way back in the Old Testament, there's this messianic prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem, uh, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And we see this, this prophetic truth laid before us hundreds of years earlier that, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You know the story, don't you? You all have nativity scenes that you set up on your mantle at home. You ever thought about those things, by the way? You know the wise men don't show up till like a couple years later, right? You know that? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Mary always looks so peaceful, like she just gave birth in a cave, but man, Mary, you look great, by the way. Like, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's theology I got to work out. But, but, but we know the prophecy, though. It happened, but the prophecy came a long time earlier, but God had to use sort of the dysfunctions of man, sinful pagan man, to actually make that come into fruition. God uses a decree from a pagan Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, as a way to fulfill his perfect, we call this the providence of God. There are no tears wasted in the kingdom of God. Listen to me. There's no pain in your life that's wasted in the kingdom of God. He uses all things for his glorious, perfect, and his perfect plans, his, his glorious and perfect plans. He ordains the ends and the means, man. He had to put eight-month pregnant Mary on a donkey because of a census, and she had to ride 90 miles. Poor girl, man. You ever thought of that? Praise God for her, right? They had to drive to Bethlehem because of the census. Like God ordains imperfect circumstances, imperfect circumstances for a perfect plan. It happened exactly when Jesus was to be born, where Jesus was to be born, how Jesus was to be born. 30 plus years later, God uses hostile Jews and Romans as a means for carrying out, once again, another part of his perfect redemptive plan to crucify Jesus as a sacrifice. In other words, God continuously uses and ordains the means for the ends. 
James reminds us in James 5.16 that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. But here's the problem is we're not righteous. Your righteousness is a pile of dirty laundry. What's that mean? You at your very worst. That's your righteousness. is a pile of dirty laundry. Except redemption happens. Jesus imputes his righteousness at salvation. And when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of, of Jesus, not the righteousness of me. Praise God. And so in other words, even our prayers that are answered by God are ordained by God. Isn't that amazing? And so, so all that to say, I wanted to lay that foundation for you. Let's look at the parable. That's a huge intro, I know, but I'll do my best. Let's look at 5 through 8, uh, Luke eleven five through 8. Jesus says to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves because a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to serve him. And from inside, he answers, says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even if he will not give, get up and give him anything just because he's his friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So that's the parable piece, okay? That's pretty simple, I think. Jesus gives them an example to ponder. In Israel, uh, people were really dependent on neighbors. I mean, I mean I'm sure you guys um, have done the sermon series, uh, The Art of Neighboring or How to Neighbor, like really the value of being hospitable to our neighbors. Uh, I think the way Chandler always puts it is uh, build smaller fences and bigger tables, okay? Like love each other, be present with each other. And like that, that was a cultural thing, by the way, um, then as well. And, and uh, there were no corner stores and grocery stores uh, in the ancient Near East. Okay, they did not have a United dairy farmers on every corner like we do here in Norwood, all right, which is just shameful. They didn't DoorDash Skyline as much as we do, okay, which is literally a terrible time in history to exist in, I think. Um, no White Castle Crave cases at midnight. No PRC gravy cheese fries at two in the morning, okay? Like if that's been your, your jam through the years, like let's go, man. We can ride together, but they didn't have that back then. Like they had to rely on each other. In fact, the ingredients they had generally was enough to make bread for the day and maybe the next day, and that was about it. I mean, it wasn't in, in, in great abundance like we've got provided for us today. Another thing, too, is work started early. It was hot back then, man. Work started early, and so bedtime was right after sundown, and they were getting up right before sunup, and they were getting started on the work day. And so, um, and so, so I mean, people were tired, but not only that, but they were, they were in bed early. They didn't lay in bed and mindlessly scroll through their Facebook timeline like I'm sure none of you do. And they also didn't watch Netflix till three in the morning like I'm sure none of you do either. So this guy shows up at his neighbor's house at midnight. He knocks on the door. Y'all, now, you don't know me, but let me tell you something about me. I'm not a good friend at midnight. That's actually the title of the parable in, in most English translations. I'm not a good friend at midnight. And, and coming off the last month where Rochelle and I were in New Orleans for a conference and we were home for three days and went to camp with you guys. <laughs> which is, let's go, dude. Um, and I went as a counselor, which never again, by the way. Uh, love, love that so much, man. But like, Vince, you do your thing, bro. I'm not. Um, and then three days later, we had mission teams. I had nine straight days of mission teams around here. Y'all don't care about this, but I'll just tell you where I'm at right now, okay? Uh, we did building projects at the church. We did outreach stuff around here uh, for nine straight days. We're like 12-hour days with mission teams. And then, we, and then right after that, we did vacation Bible school this past week. Yeah, yeah, someone just moaned. Was that a grunt? Was that a was that a, a a sympathy moan that I just heard? Yeah, that just happened for us, man. Mm. And so, like at this point in my life, I'm not a good friend after 8 p.m., bro. Okay, so like notifications are shut off at seven. Don't try calling me. Call Pastor John. Uh, he'll take care of you at least for a, a little while. So like 
come knocking on my door at midnight. It's just not happening. Right? I'm like, I'm telling you to go home, bro. I see you on the ring doorbell. I'm not answering. Um, I don't know where you are with that, but that's where I'm at at least. And so, 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 so here's the neighbor knocks on the door. Hey, we need three loaves of bread. Uh, could you, could you, could you lend me three loaves of bread? Now, a couple things to understand. First off, this was not a physical emergency. Okay. His wife was not in labor. Okay. Uh, they're not being robbed. Okay. Uh, he had a friend show up. They traveled at night often, or at least after sundown because of the heat of the day. And so we had a friend show up on this journey and he was hungry. And for me, I'm like, dude, just come in the morning. We'll get you French toast. We're good. Right. But like at this point, it's not happening. The other thing that you have to also understand is that families oftentimes sort of shared a mat to sleep on. And the doors that they had often were made out of wood and iron. It would have made a lot of noise. In other words, if I open the door to help you, my family's going to wake up and what you're asking me for isn't worth it. It's not an emergency. In fact, it's, a, it's more of a social emergency than anything. They were very hospitable uh, in their culture, and so it was more of a social emergency. So I think the response of this neighbor was a reasonable response, no? I, I, I just can't help you. I've got to take care of my family. We're sleeping. I'll holler at you in the morning. I don't know. That's maybe my response as well. Now, we don't know what the rest of the dialogue looks like uh, based on what the next portion reveals to us. We think there is more dialogue, but this is what we get. Jesus skips the rest of the dialogue and jumps in this. I tell you, even if he will not get up and give him anything just because he's his friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, what that tells us is that this neighbor didn't stop at a no. You know what I mean? Like, hey, we need some bread. It was like flatbread at that point. Just, we need some pieces of bread. And he didn't just stop at a no. He was persistent. He was shameless. Uh, This word translates persistence, boldness, audacity. Because of the boldness of the neighbor, the audacity of the neighbor, finally the neighbor gave in. Eventually got what he asked for. That's where the text goes from being parabolic to promise because now Jesus has to unpack exactly what this means. He continues on in verse nine. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Now, let me be very clear. The scripture is taught inaccurately in a lot of church movements. Okay? I'm going to do my very best not to teach it like those guys teach it. There are false gospels that have been built on these types of scriptures being taught inaccurately. Okay, and so there's no prosperity, anything that I'm going to lay before you today. All right, just to be very clear, all right? It's so good, though. Jesus tells them. He said, first off, he says, and I tell you. Did you catch that? At the very beginning of verse, of verse, uh, uh, was that verse 8? I tell you, okay? Jesus is God incarnate. Can we agree with that, at least? Jesus is God incarnate. And so Jesus speaks on behalf of God with authority. And so God says, I tell you even if he will not get up and give him anything just because he's a friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. So Jesus commands believers then to ask, seek, and knock. Now, understand that those uh, verbs are more intense as they go. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Now, let's be very clear again. Scripture establishes that true prayers have one subject, and that's God the Father. Okay? God is the recipient. He's the focus of true prayers. And so this command that Jesus is giving isn't a blank check to ask for anything and that he's promising to answer it with whatever you're asking for. 
That's not what's being established here in our text. James speaks to this in James chapter 4. He says, you desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So Jesus is saying, all right, very clearly, is that when you pray with proper God-centered focus, then your will will align with his will, and you'll get what you desire. That's a promise. Why? Because his plan is ordained, and your prayer is an ordained means to an ordained end. There's even a principle laid before us in verses 11 and 12. Now, he says this, which one of you, this gets funky right here, doesn't it? Which one of you fathers will... His son asked for a fish, and instead of a fish, you'll give him a snake. He'll even ask for an egg, and his father will give him a scorpion. Y'all, there's this transition happening here where Jesus is taking this conversation from friendship to fatherhood. If a person would respond with a bold request from a friend, man, how much more would a father respond to his children? He gives a few hypothetical questions. What father would give their son a snake if he asked for a fish? Let's be real for a second. I've got three kids, man. Um, Kids are needy, aren't they? Uh, We can't go to Target without Jackson wanting a slush puppy, Brentley wanting a video game, and Henry wanting out of the cart. You know what I mean? Kids are needy. They ask for anything, right? So it's not... This isn't a, hey, give your kids everything to ask for, because there's a lot of things they'll ask for that's just not healthy or helpful for them to have, Right? But Jesus is saying, what, what father would give a deadly snake to their kid when he asked for a, fried, a piece of fried catfish? Furthermore, what father would give a kid a dangerous scorpion when all the kid wants is a boiled egg? Uh, the point is very simple. Fathers take care of their children, and they meet the needs of their children. In fact, good fathers do what they can to keep their children out of danger. How much better is our heavenly father? How much more does he have? Y'all listen to me, Christian believer, follow this. You can confidently and boldly ask the Father for anything that is within his reasonable character. Why? Because he's approachable and because he's generous. Which leads really to a a concluding part of our scripture. It says it this way. So if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There's a lot to do here with this last portion. He says, if you then who are evil, like that super flattering description, isn't it? Are you evil, wicked, little human beings, you know, right? You just care so much about yourself. If you who are evil, by the way, he's saying this to his disciples, not the Pharisees. If you who are evil, and praise God, though, for the redemptive work of Christ, who takes a depraved heart of stone and makes it into a heart of flesh, right? And so so if you who are evil, right? In fact, this word, uh, let's just keep going with this. Uh, The word for evil is poneros, which is uh, also a title used for Satan. In Matthew 13, John 17, Ephesians 6, Jesus didn't say you do evil. He says you are evil. Let's just take that and preach it, Vince. Um, but they've been, <laughs> handle that next week, bro. Um, 
but they've been redeemed and they've been forgiven, right? So they stand apart. But Jesus is saying this, y'all. Even if evil fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, even if unbelievers still splurge at Christmas time because they want to bring joy to the face of their children, and these people, they don't understand the generosity of the Father, how much more can the Father do for you? I love this, man. Even in the depraved, wicked heart of the unbeliever, we still see the image of God present. They're still image bearers. Even the staunchest of unbelievers cannot hide the character and image of God that exists in them. Y'all listen, man, he will get his glory. Whether you want to give it to him or not, he'll get his glory. Jesus is like human fathers love imperfectly. And listen, man, listen, I bet you're good dads. All right, but receive this, please. Human fathers love imperfectly. They often lack wisdom to know what is best for their children all the time. They often lack resources to efficiently provide for their children. That's all of us. But our God, no, no, that father loves perfectly. He's all wise and he knows what's best all the time. He has all the resources to do whatever he wants to do for us. So how much more will God give what's best for his children? The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Those of us who are sons and daughters of the king. And then he concludes, which is the part that we'll sort of emphasize as we close, the last part of our text in Luke 11. He says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is interesting. There's a similar teaching found in Matthew chapter 7. Let me, let me read this to you, Matthew 7, 11. It says, if you then, it's going to sound familiar, but just a little difference at the end. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Okay? So in Matthew, he's saying, how much more will God give you the blessings of heaven, okay, good things, to those who ask him, who follow him, who walk uprightly, all those things. But in, in Matthew 7, instead of, he says that God will give us good things. In Luke 11, our text today, he expounds a little bit more deeply by saying that the gift that God gives is not just good things, but the giver of goodness, right? We don't always know what to ask for. The gifts that, that the Father has for us are often greater than we even know to ask for. Let me, dude, way back in like the early 90s, I remember we had perfect attendance at school one year, my, my sisters and I did, and mom and dad rewarded us with uh, a Nintendo NES. Remember those joints? Come on, Mario? Like that cat, man, I don't, I don't get it. Why are they the Mario brothers, but only one of them's Mario? What's their last name? Did we ever figure that out? But it's all good, dude. We'll stick with it, all right? Um... And I, that was the one, the, the unit where you actually had to blow into the cassette when it wasn't working because somehow, somehow the breath of heaven went straight through the breath of young children into the cassette pieces. And, and, and then sometimes you sort of had to slam the cassette. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if it didn't, whatever. You didn't have to be gentle. Sometimes you had a, I think it was a brick at times. You'd play for like five hours, but it didn't like save in the hard drive where you were at. So you had to pause it when you went out to dinner and just like fingers crossed, Jesus, please. Let it still be on when I get back, man. Please let it still be on when I get back. Is that okay? 
And, and so, so man, that was, that was, our, that was our, our life, dude, for, for way so long. And now I criticize my kids for all the screen time, and I don't get it. It's like back in my day, I used to, no, I didn't. I used to sit in front of the Nintendo NES and play Mario Brothers. Um, but anyways, that thing broke one day, and I was devastated. That's so why I begged mom. This, by the way, is one of those really stupid examples for you that is supposed to have like heavenly meetings. This is my own parable for you. Um, not ordained by God, it, whatever. Let me just keep going. Um, and so it broke and I'm begging mom and dad, we need another one. We need another one. We need another one, please. Uh, but mom said, no, I'm not gonna get you another one. And I was devastated, right? Like I was limited with what I was asking for. And mom and dad show up one day with a gift for us. But guess what? It wasn't a Nintendo NES. It was a Sega Genesis. Sonic, let's go, dude. We went from collecting, we went from collecting coins to rings, which I, it's like a hip hop lyric, I think, isn't it? It, it, One of your favorite, I don't know. Dude, life changed, baby. I mean, now it's like Sonic the Hedgehog and Tails, and it was, we just did VBS, and that was a theme, twists and turns. I like giant Sonics, and dude, it just took me back, and it was so good. I think there's a spiritual lesson in that example. Let me find out where it's at in my notes here. Oh, here it is. Here's the point. We ask for a gift without even realizing what's available to us with our heavenly father. If I can be preacher moment for a second. We ask for a gift. God gives the giver of gifts. How good is that? We ask for the effect. God gives the cause. We ask for the product. He gives us the source. We ask for comfort. He gives the what? Comforter. I thought you would have nailed that one. Let's keep going. We ask for power. He gives a source of power. We ask for help. He gives the Helper, you guys, preach it with me, baby. Come on. We ask for truth. He gives the spirit of truth. Listen, y'all. We want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He gives us the producer and the source of those things. Y'all, this last statement, like, I need you to hear this. This is a game changer for us. The Jews were familiar with the Holy Spirit, man. He was, he was revealed in the Old Testament. He was involved in creation in Genesis 1. He was associated with the Messiah, the coming Messiah, according to Isaiah 61 and Joel 2, all right? Uh, they knew that Jesus would send the Spirit to regenerate, according to our text in Titus 3, 5, and that he indwelled those who put their faith in Jesus. They were familiar with all of this. We know that the Holy Spirit is the cause of every good thing in the life of a Christian. He convicts unbelieving sinners. He enables us to be aware and repent of our sins. We enter the kingdom of God through salvation by being born of the Spirit in regeneration and confessing Jesus as Lord through the Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit that we receive the knowledge of God. It's the Spirit who frees believers from the law of sin and death and seals us for eternal life. Believers are baptized with the Spirit, placing us in the church, in the body of Christ. Believers are indwelt by the Spirit and continuously filled with the Spirit, y'all. The Holy Spirit empowers us for evangelism, intercedes for us with the Father, sanctifies us, and makes us progressively more like Jesus. If I can just trim all the fat and just give you this one statement to take home with you, the Holy Spirit gives us hope. So this is what Jesus is telling us. You guys ask for a lot of stuff. Why? Because we're just needy children. And all that's fine, man. Take it to them. Fall on your knees and take it to them. But bold, confident prayers result in communion with God and all the rich blessings of his goodness as as believers experience the reality. And let me keep this in context for us from Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, that's that request of, I don't even know what I'm asking for. I don't even know what's all available to me. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Did you catch that? According to the power at work within us. Who is and what is the power at work within us? Man, that's the Holy Spirit of God. So the point is this, man. So we look at this parable and the, the truth being taught from this parable is that God ordains the ends and he ordains the means to the ends. And our prayers are included in those means. So yes, man, they matter. Your prayers matter. They are a part of the entire redemptive plan that God has for his creation. And in fact, our prayers are an act of worship. And these worshipful requests and the communion with our Father that leads then to ordained responses from our, not only are our prayers ordained, the responses of God to our prayers are ordained and they all make up God's plan and the promise that result in him receiving glory first and foremost, which then results in God pouring out blessing after blessing and after blessing over his people primarily by the working of the Holy Spirit who is at work in our lives. There's this beautiful cycle of harmony and unity between God's God's people and the Godhead, man, as he's invited us into the dance with the Godhead and this beautiful relationship. And so all that to say, as I wrap this thing up, man, as we're going to enter into communion in just a moment, is that the greatest need that we've ever had, and we've got a lot of needs, we're needy, and we'll take them before God the Father and ask him for it. And he's going to, by the way, um, the great theologian Garth Brooks once wrote a song called unanswered prayers. Can I just lay this before you? Okay. Like he didn't go to seminary and if he did, not a good one. Okay. Never a such thing as an unanswered prayer. Can I just lay that before you? If God says no, he's answered you. Can we just like lean into that and find a little bit of rest in that? Like he knows what's best. All right. We just lay that before you. But the greatest need that we'll ever lay before our father was also already given an answer, right? Because we know that we needed saving and God gave us a savior that we needed healing and God gave us a healer, that we needed rescued and he sent his rescuer. So believer, can I just plead with you, please ask, seek and knock and see what the Lord does. Jesus, you're good to us. I'm so grateful for your love, for the opportunity, Lord, to be with these brothers and sisters, Lord, and lay before them your holy word. And God, I pray that in this space, Lord, that Whatever your spirit does, whatever your word does in the lives of your people, Lord, I pray that you're glorified. I pray, Lord, that you remind us of the abundant blessings that are continuously poured out to your people. Grace that is undeserved, but freely given. Forgiveness that is undeserved, but freely given. Love that is undeserved, but freely given. Salvation that is undeserved, but freely given. Lord, you are a generous father. Lord, I pray for encouragement, Lord, because there are a lot of things that we ask for. And Lord, there are a lot of answers that you give us that do not align with what our flesh requests. But Lord, I pray that even in the midst of a prayer that's not answered the way that we want it to be answered, Lord, that we can lean into the providential work of a holy God who knows exactly what he's doing. And that you would still receive the glory and the honor and the praise. Lord, I pray that you align our will with your will and that what we lay before you, Lord, is an unadulterated desire to see your kingdom expanded to the world. I pray this morning, Lord, as Pastor Vince makes his way up here, Lord, to lead us in a time 
the Lord's table, Lord, that that your spirit, Lord, will lead us into the confession and the repentance of sin and remind us, Lord, of the work of the Holy Spirit that's even attached to that. Be glorified in this place. Be honored in this place, Jesus. We ask in your sweet, sweet name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.